0: We are today picking up, continuing our study of the book of Titus. So please go ahead and start to find that either in your Bible or the Bible that's available in front of you there We're in the book of Titus. If you are using the one sitting in the seat, you'll see the page number if you're not familiar, so you can find it with relative ease. Titus chapter 2. I thought we were going to get through this book in three weeks. and Will laughed at me. We are getting closer now. This is about our sixth or seventh study in the book, but we'll make our way through um, here. We're looking at one of the three pastoral epistles where Paul would write uh, words of direction, encouragement, um, teaching uh, for these two young pastors, Timothy being one of them, Titus being the other, because they were about to be commissioned to really serve as an apostolic representative. Uh, to to be Paul's representative. He couldn't be everywhere and so these guys were gonna accomplish what he would accomplish if he could. And again, in the instance here involving Titus, uh, we're talking about the ministry that was going to take place on the island of Crete, uh, not too far off uh, of southern Europe. Um, There this relatively large island, lots of towns and villages, lots of people, and we don't, I don't know how many, I don't know if anybody knows how many, but many of those towns and villages having churches. And there were things that needed to be put in order in those churches, as we've learned. And so we saw in chapter 1, verse 5, he had to appoint elders in every one of those towns, spiritual leaders that would take on the task of leading that congregation even when Titus himself uh, was off of the island. That was the first thing he would have to do. Secondly, we saw at the end of chapter one, he would have to deal with the false teachers and the false teachings that were making their way into those churches and was, was upsetting whole families, he said, people were being impacted by it. That would be a responsibility of Titus. And then as we have been considering the last few weeks now, Uh, teaching for the general congregation, not so much for the leaders and not so much uh, teachings about these false teachers and so on, but as we read in chapter 2 verse 1, but as for you Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And that's where he was going to address the different groups in the church. He was going to address the older men and the older women and the younger men and the younger women and so on, what they needed to know to walk this walk as a Christian. So again, he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine, but then he doesn't go into sound doctrine. He's already assuming Titus knows that. What he goes into is, what should the response of a person that has just learned sound doctrine, what should that look like? What should an older Christian man's life look like, an older Christian woman's life look like, and so on. And so chapter two, verse two, the older men, chapter two, verse three, the older women, chapter two, verses three through five, the younger women, And then what we last considered, chapter 2, verse 6, the younger men. Now, as we come to verse 7, Paul's going to turn his attention to Titus himself. I'm sending you there. You're going to be the minister there. This is the work you're going to do there. You're going to appoint some elders. You're going to deal with false teachers. You're going to break down each of these groups and talk to them about certain things. But in verse 7 and 8, actually, he turns to Titus. What sort of man must Titus be? there's an old expression, maybe you've heard it, more is caught than taught. And people are going to look at Titus's life, and they're going to watch Titus's life, and they're going to learn a lot from Titus, even in the many instances where he's not opening his mouth. And they're going to see how he responds to frustration, and they're going to see how he re- responds to the happy moments in life, and the joys of life, and the disappointments in life, and they're going to watch his life. And they're going to learn lessons as to what it means to be a follower of Christ by observing their minister. And so Paul turns his attention here to Titus, and he says, Titus, these are the things you need to focus yourself on as well. We've already told you what the older men need to do and the younger men need to do and the older women and younger women, but Titus, this is for you. And Paul, we know, he sat at the feet of an ancient rabbi, an older, I should say rabbi, When he was a young man, and he watched him, and he learned from him, we read in the book of Acts chapter 22 that that individual was a man by the name of Gamaliel, who seems to be a good man. He didn't know Christ. Uh, I don't know if he ended up knowing Christ, but in the early years of his life, he didn't know Christ. But nonetheless, he was a nice man, a good man, and Paul learned from him. We know that Paul invested his life into a lot of young men himself. People like Timothy, of course, as we've been considering, and Titus, and Silas, and Luke, and all of these people that he invested his life into, they could could observe him and watch him. And that's now what he's telling Titus. And so he says this in verse 7, he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us." And so his first instructions to Titus regarding his own life is that he live in such a way as to be an example to others. And specifically, as you see here, to the young men. Remember, that's who he was going to be working directly with, but it's, it's an example to anyone that would be watching. People are going to be looking, people are going to be observing observing him, and he tells him to be an example. Titus is going to have two tools as a minister in that congregation, uh, and all of those congregations there in the island, he's going to have two tools that he can work with. Number one would be his exhortation, and we talked about that's his teaching. We saw that in verse six, and now we see in verses seven and eight, his second tool is going to be his example. Now, exhortation is when you teach someone and then you strongly encourage them, put that into practice now. And Titus is going to do that. An example, that is where he is going to model putting it into practice for himself. And it's the second of these two that Paul digs into here in verses 7 and 8. Again, he begins, he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Now, it's important to know when Paul says good works, He's not referring to uh, good acts of service. You know, sometimes we think about them in in that particular way. What are the good works that you've done? Well, you know, I helped this lady across the street, and I've done this, and I mowed a lawn, and all that. That's not what Paul has in mind. There's a place for that, certainly. We should be serving other people in that way. But the word that is used here is a word which means, and and I'll I'll paraphrase what, what it is that Paul is saying, is that Titus should set the example for others... With the overall life that he is living. And so the word means it's any act, any deed, or anything that is done. Titus was to be an example to others just by the way he lived his life, day in and day out, when he's on duty as a pastor and when he is off duty, because he's a follower of Christ and as followers of Christ, the way we live our lives, the things we do, the people we do them with, how we go about doing them, all of that should be impacted because we're Christians. And so Paul is saying to Titus, live your life in such a way that you're constantly on display. That if anyone has any doubt, I wonder how I should, how should I respond if somebody starts yelling at me for no reason? Well, look at Titus. How did Titus respond when people started yelling at him for no reason? I wonder how I should respond if nothing seems to go my way in a particular day. Look at Titus. How did Titus respond in that circumstance? I wonder how I should respond if everything is fantastic and it's going great in my life. Should I run around and boast about that and put everybody down and look, God loves me so much more than he loves you or something? Well let's look at the example of Titus. And so Paul here is saying when Titus is down playing sports at the local gym, he should be different than he would be if he wasn't a Christian. And when he's at the grocery store, every single instance where Titus might find himself, he could set a pattern that others could emulate as to how a follower of Christ should live their lives. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he said this, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. And that's what he's calling Titus to here: live in such a way that you can do the exact same thing. You can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now what Titus taught certainly was immensely important. Paul made that point in the last few chapters, particularly the end of chapter one. So his doctrine, of course, was very, very important. But I think the point that Paul is making here that we can pull out of this is this, it's just important in the the way that and in the manner in which Titus lived. And so you've heard people say things like, well, don't watch what I do, just listen to what I say. Well, that that doesn't work, and it can't work. And so it's just as important the manner in which he lives as the things that he teaches. And whether you're a preacher or not, like Titus is, but especially if you're a preacher or someone officially representing the Lord, but either way, the life that we live has to measure up with the words that we say. If anybody is going to take us seriously as we try and share our faith with others, you know, we have this relational evangelism course coming up on Saturday morning um, for the ladies with the prayer breakfast. If anybody is going to take you seriously, then your life and your words have to measure up. Because if it is a complete contradiction, people, are, this guy, they might be polite to you. They might be like, oh, yeah, that's very interesting. Come on. This lady, she doesn't even believe it herself. He doesn't even believe it himself. He says one thing and he does another. And so Paul's instructions to Timothy is that he needs to be the same man, Titus I should say, the same man outside of the pulpit as he is in the pulpit. Warren Wiersbe, a great man, I think he's dead, but he was a great man. I, I don't remember. But he said this, he says, whatever the pastor wants his church to be, he must first be himself. And I think we can expand that a little bit and extrapolate some additional meaning. Whatever the mom or dad wants their kids to be, the mom or dad need to be themselves. And whatever the employer wants his employees or her employees to be, that's exactly what he needs to be or she needs to be. And you can fill in the blank there, but what you want in somebody else is what you need to be yourself. Because hypocrisy, you know this, everybody knows this isn't like, that's so profound. I would have never known that. I mean, we all know this. What drives us nuts? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy kills a person's witness. You know, it's fascinating when you, you look at Jesus. The people that drove him nuts more than any, I don't know if that's the right term, but you get what I'm trying to say. The people that just really bothered him the most were religious leaders that were hypocrites. Paul concludes his statement here to Titus by telling him that he needs to be an example himself. You remember at the end of chapter one, this is what Paul said of the false teachers. He said, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And then he went on, boy, Paul, he said, they're detestable, they're disobedient. And then he said, and they are unfit for any good work. That word unfit there, it's a word which means disqualified. You want to enter into a particular race, but you don't meet the qualifications for that race, or you violated something with the rules, you're disqualified. You're not allowed to do it. And what Paul was saying about these false teachers were they they sounded good. They they were good speakers. People were listening to them. Crowds were coming and all of this stuff. But their lives disqualified them from being teachers of God. You remember how Paul began chapter 2? He says, but not you, Titus. That's not the way you are, Titus. Paul knew that about our friend Titus here, and he's challenging him again, he's reminding him again, you need to be exactly opposite as those false teachers. You need to practice what you preach. He was to set a pattern for others. He goes on in verse seven, and he says, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Now he still has the idea here of being a model to others. The first example was a model on how he lived. The second example is being a model in how he spoke. And Paul has repeatedly addressed the issue of doctrinal soundness, that soundness, health, it's good, solid doctrine. He's talked about that in this book a lot. He's also talked about unsound doctrine, but we'll put it all together here for our purposes. Here, however, is a call for Titus. To guard his tongue, his mouth, the things he said, not just when he's in the pulpit, but in every circumstance of his life. Yes, he is to remain doctrinally pure. Incorruptible is how some versions translate it. It talks here about this idea of integrity. Uh, In the verse it says, uh, in your teaching show, integrity, dignity, and sound speech. It speaks here of this idea of integrity. And integrity has a number of different meanings in our English language. This has the meaning here where we might say something, looking at a building, and it looks like it might be coming down, falling down, and we, we wonder about the integrity of the building. You've heard it used that way. It's referring to this idea of stability. He was to be stable in his teaching. It was to be solid. It was to be strong. It was to be sound. He's saying this to him. In the book of Ephesians, Paul, writing to another group, he said this, speaking uh, about this topical, topic of spiritual maturity, he mentions this key idea. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness, by deceitful, by deceitful schemes, tossed to and fro. Believe this kind of today, believe that sort of tomorrow. Which way is the wind blowing? That's sort of where I believe. Well, certainly, if that's important for the congregation, which is what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter uh, 4, well, then it's especially important of the leader of that congregation, which is our friend Titus here. And so he talks to him about doctrinal integrity, stability of doctrine, know what it is you believe. There are people, there are teachers that will twist the word of God to suit their purposes. Titus was to set the example that that was not to be what the man of God was supposed to do. And there are other teachers that will go with every wind of doctrine, depending on what is popular, because this particular doctrine everyone's interested in is drawing a particular crowd. But if it doesn't measure up with the scripture, you can't just go down that particular path. And he's telling them here, be, set an example. Stay fixed on God's word. Don't veer from the, to the left. Don't veer to the right. But stay fixed on the word of God. That's doctrinal integrity. That's stability. And Titus was to set that example. And if he couldn't do that, well, then he wasn't yet ready to be leading a body of believers. But Paul was confident Titus was ready. And he said that on multiple occasions here. And so he, he gives him this reminder how easy it is just to drift. And he reminds him, stay on the path here. He goes on, he says to him, and in your teaching, again, this idea of being a model, in your teaching show dignity. Now, this is a verse that, uh, or word, that a number of different translations translated differently. So if you look at all, a lot of the English translations, in the English Standard, what I'm reading, it says dignity. In the New International Version, it says seriousness, with all seriousness. The King James uses the word gravity. The New King James uses the word reverence. Other versions use the word sincerity. The strict literal meaning is to be without wax, to be without wax. And the context of it is this. I'll, I'll try to paint a little bit of picture. It, this it reminded me a lot of when I was young. When I was little, my mom had a Lennox nativity scene, and every year you buy another uh, piece for the nativity scene, and this was the most precious thing we had in our house. Well, when you're seven, or 10, I, I was probably 15, when you're, you, you don't really know. And so it was also in the room where I played indoor basketball uh, in the house, and of course, knocked over the Lennox nativity set here, uh, and. Poor Mary broke off her arm. Um, I know, the the little shepherd boy, the back of his head came off and all this stuff. Well, you know, good kids, they tell their moms, like, I'm so sorry I did this. Would you please forgive me? Well, I wasn't a good kid, and so uh, you get the glue out, and you glue it all up, and you you white out the crack line here, and then you have to be very careful. Every year when it's time to set it up, that person's gonna be looking at it the most, and so I would always volunteer. Oh, let me set up the nativity scene. Well, my mom, my mom came to believe that he really loves that nativity scene. And when she got older, she said, I want to give this to you. (laughs) Because I know how much it means to you. And I said, well, no, you don't. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure I ever told her. Um, But. So imagine this scenario here. You you have a statue of something outside here. And in Roman society, it's going to be marble and all this kind of stuff. Very, very expensive uh, and stuff. If you want to cut some corners, what they did was they would take wax. They would mold it. They would shape it. They'd put it on to the back of that little shepherd boy's head, whatever it might be, paint it up there. No one will ever notice. And we just saved millions of dollars here, lots and lots of money here. The problem is, when that little statue is standing out there in the hot sun, the wax begins to melt, and and what it does is, it reveals, that wasn't real at all, that was an imitation, that was fake, and so Paul uses words, or words like sincerity, seriousness, that's not even real there. And that's why you have sort of all these different ones. But the word that was used was a word that meant uh, to be without wax, fake, and yet passing it off as if it's the real thing. It's a cheap replica, and it can't stand the heat. And if you're you're trying to walk with God in this world, and if you're trying to be a minister of a a body of believers here, the heat's going to come. It's going to shine on you, and people are going to look at your life, and they're going to observe you, and they're going to watch to see if it's worth them becoming a Christian. Because if you respond to all of that junk the same way that everybody else responds to all that junk, well, then why would I be interested in what it is you have to offer? Titus is to be real, and the real deal, if you want to say it in such a way. Now, as far as this idea of dignity is concerned, Titus wasn't there to put on a show. We're not here to put on a show. We're not not trying to be something we're not. We're not actors. This is who we are, and from the inside out, this is what comes out of us. And so for our friend Titus here, he had to understand the seriousness of what he was doing. He had to be the real deal. There's a commentator, John Phillips, he said, Look, the issues with which Scripture deals, sin and death, time and eternity, heaven and hell, Christ and Calvary, Those are all too serious to be treated with frivolity. And Titus needed to be serious about what it was that he was doing, and he had to set the example of that seriousness. He's not playing around, he's on games. Lastly, it says that he was to set the example of sound speech that could not be condemned. Now you would think as Titus, he's the minister there, the pastor, you would think he's referring to, look, when you get up in the pulpit, make sure good sound speech and so on. It's a different word that is used here. This is not a word that is used for public speaking. This is a word that is used for just you're in a group of one or two or three or four other people. It's like chit-chatting. It's that kind of word. And he calls him to sound speech in all of his daily conversation that he is having, that he has to set the example in those uh, those conversations. And so if there's something that he wouldn't say, you wouldn't say while preaching a sermon, then you probably shouldn't be saying it. Sometimes people will come into a church setting. Sometimes we'll get people, they'll come in here, is this the building you know, for such and such? They don't know the word church. This building has been lots of things over the years. And so they'll be coming in, they'll look for something, and we're like, no, that's not us. And they'll say, ah, oh, crap. But they won't say crap. <laughs> and then they'll go like this, oh no, I just cursed in a church. It's just as wrong if you're in a church or you're outside, of it. if you think it's wrong, then don't do it um, here. Titus was to be an example. And it's not just in the area of foul language. He was to be an example with everything that came across his tongue. So he was to set the example about not being a gossip, which is, scripture speaks a lot about. Not backbiting, not slandering others. Not being sarcastic, not being a liar. The Bible talks about not being a coarse jester. Anything that comes across the tongue, he was to set the pattern and the example of this is what it means to walk with Jesus. Again, he was to be the real deal that people could look at and say, there it is. That's what I'm striving to be. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. He goes on and he concludes this little section of Titus and he says, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. First notice here, about us. Paul includes himself in it. And whether he's including himself as me and Titus, because I I put Titus there and so if you do a bad job, people are going to think of me, or he's talking about all ministers, you know, if Titus sets an example of this is what a, poor, a minister looks like and it's in a poor one, then all the ministers are going to read really, Or if it's just simply as a Christian. People are going to look at Titus's life and draw some conclusions about everybody else's faith as well. And Paul says, look, live your life in such a way so that no one will be able to say anything evil about us. That everyone's reputation that names the name of Christ is going to take a hit if Titus is a hypocrite. I mentioned last week that we're all too familiar with examples of ministers that have gotten inappropriately involved with typically women that they shouldn't be involved with. And those negative testimonies, as many of us, I'm sure, know, they impact all of us. Because people know the name of that guy, and they heard the story of what that guy did. And he's a representative of Christianity, so all you Christians or the same. They gave people, people a reason to reject you without even really talking to you. And ultimately, I don't care if they reject me, but ultimately, they reject the gospel. I haven't even been given a chance to give you the gospel, because some other guy lived in such a way that caused disrepute to the name of Christ. And so Paul says, nothing evil to say about us. He also adds in this statement here, so that an opponent Uh, may be put to shame. Those Titus interacted with, they might not agree with his teaching. They might not agree with his conclusions, you know, and and all of the points that he is making here, but Paul is saying here uh, regarding Titus, and each of us, I think this applies to every one of us, is that they should not be able to argue with your response to your own teaching. They should not be able to say, well, you don't even believe it. Because you're not even living up to the standard that you're talking about here. Again, Titus was to be the real deal. And so if someone ever did come out with rash accusations, and maybe you had people do that. I've had some instances where people, not a lot, but a few, where people will say a particular thing that I said this, or I did this, or I went there, whatever it might be. And other folks, fortunately, are able to come alongside you like, I don't think so. I know him pretty well. That doesn't sound like him to me. Others could sort of rise up to your defense because you've set that pattern and you've set that example. doesn't mean necessarily you can't still go down that path, but you've set a track record. And people see that and people know that. And so they would be put to shame then. They'd be embarrassed. I'm sorry I even brought it up. That sort of thing. Now, we have one final group, and I think this will apply to every one of us, so I'm excited. Here. This is... This is the last group, the fifth and final group that Titus is going to uniquely work with. Remember when you work with the old men, older men talk about this and so on. This last group here, it begins in verse 9, or the bond servants. Now maybe in your version it, it lists the word slave. In that day and age they were exactly the same thing. We, I think, I don't know, maybe we're a little more comfortable using the term bond servants here because we have a picture in our mind of what a slave is. But a bond servant in ancient Roman history, there was a slave. And so he talked to the older men, the younger men, the older women, the younger women. Now he's going to talk to the bond servants or the slaves. He says bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now the other four groups he addressed were based on age and sex, age and gender. Here now he's going to address groups based on social status, their status in society, the bondservant, the lowest of the low in that Roman society, those that were property of somebody else. He's going to address them now. Now, of course, we don't live in a society that allows the institution of slavery. Certainly, we know there's instances of it that is occurring, I think, even in our nation as well as nations abroad, certainly. But we don't allow the institution of slavery as first century Roman society did. But it was very, very prevalent in first century Roman society. It wasn't uncommon for up to two-thirds of the population of a community to either be a slave or to have been a slave, and then the free men and women as well. And so everyone knew what slavery was, and they were aware of it, and they were interacting with it on a daily basis. Depending on the city in which a particular congregation was located, as many as half of the people in the congregation could have been or might have been slaves. And so does the Bible speak into those individual people's lives as to how they should be a bondservant or a slave? Well, I think it does. We think it does. Now, before we turn our attention to what Paul's instructions for Titus were regarding these bondservants, I think it's important to point out again, something that we point out from time to time as we come to things like this, just because the Bible acknowledges the existence of an institution does not necessarily mean that the Bible approves of that institution. And so Paul here is not addressing the legitimacy of slavery. Some have concluded, well, Paul talked about slavery, didn't say anything about it. He didn't say it was wrong, so I guess it's okay. This is some of the argument of Christians, even in the United States, in the 1800s and so on, and before that. Paul is not addressing here the legitimacy of slavery. He is addressing how a Christian should respond if they were a slave. And again, uh, if your picture of slavery is the uh, American chattel slavery that many of us grew up learning about in schools and things like that, that's not what Roman slavery looked like. A slave in the Roman society, they were still owned by somebody else, which is wrong in and of itself. But a slave in the Roman society might be the guy that lives at the house next door. And he might even own that particular house. It's possible. Luke, you know Luke in the Bible? Dr. Luke was a slave. And many slaves were trained to be the personal physicians of their leaders. So He was a well-educated guy here who it seems got his freedom or was granted time off, if you will, so that he could travel with the apostle Paul. But Luke, we know, was a slave. Many people in first century Roman society even sold themselves into slavery so they could have a better life, financially. Someone's putting food on my table, that sort of thing. And so the idea here of slavery, it is a little different from what you might be thinking, what we might be thinking, when we have in our minds somebody going to a foreign land, kidnapping someone, and, and so on and so forth. I don't think the idea of one person owning another is ever good, and I I would hope everybody here would agree. But the New Testament, interesting, it never advocates the overthrowing of slavery. That wasn't Paul's mission. Paul wasn't writing to to overthrow political systems or economic systems or cultural systems of his day. There would be other people that would take up that mantle. I think of William Wilberforce, for instance, in England, who took up, that was his goal, really. He didn't want to be in Congress, whatever it was, Parliament, Parliament any longer here, but that was his goal. Before I get out of here, we're going to get rid of this institution uh, in England. Paul's goal was to convert hearts and change the, the system from the inside out. As, and if you look, for instance, at the book of Philemon, we're going to look at that a little bit later um, after we study some of these other books here, but we'll get to the book of Philemon. You can really see Paul's strategy He wanted a changed man, this owner here, Philemon, to kind of get rid of slavery on his own in many regards because he was a slave owner who had become a Christian. And so you're not going to find in Paul's writings where he really addresses the conditions of slavery. You're not going to see him cast judgment on whether it should go and all this kind of stuff. What Paul does is he simply recognizes that it exists and then he deals with the attitude that the Christian bond servant should have. And interesting to note elsewhere, he'll deal with the attitude that the Christian master should have as well. He'll do that in Ephesians chapter 5. And so I said a minute ago that the slave could be the guy that lived next door. That might be exaggerating a little bit. But the reality is this, is that the churches would have been comprised of slaves and non-slaves. And it's, it's probably not unfathomable that a slave would have been one of the elders of a congregation, in a sense, in charge of a congregation where his master went to church. It's certainly possible here. He had a newfound spiritual freedom, even while he didn't quite have a physical freedom. Well, how should he live with that spiritual freedom? Well, Paul's going to address three common areas of sin that the typical Christian, or excuse me, the Christian, excuse me, the typical slave might have wrestled with and particularly now a Christian slave would wrestle with and that's going to be disobedience toward their master talking back to their masters and theft from their masters and now if you haven't made the connection here if you're thinking that's interesting if I ever become a Roman slave I'll know what to do if you haven't made the connection instead of thinking masters slaves think think employers and employees most of us here are probably employees. I guess some of us here, we're in supervisory positions, and so in that sense, we're an employer over others here uh, that we can make these applications to. So think of the employer-employee relationship. Paul begins this way. He says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. Other versions use the word obedient to their masters. This word submissive, same word that we saw last week is used in a few other instances lately that we've used. It's a military term. This is a particular military term that refers to the, uh, the private or whatever you might be, standing and waiting for instructions. And then the captain or whomever, I I'm not in the military I, and I'm botching the words and I apologize here, but the general says, I doubt the general's gonna talk to the private, but let's say he did uh, or she did. He's gonna say, this, this is what I wanna do. Can we talk about that? You know, I do, I don't want to like, no, you do what I tell you to do, go, submissive, obedient. Paul expected the bond servants to do what they were told in everything, it says in the passage. Now, of course, in every instance where we've had this point of human submission, if the boss is expecting you to do something illegal or even something immoral, you don't have to do it. Your first allegiance is to God. And God will protect you from all problems, right? Not necessarily. You may lose your job. I'm not doing that. I can't do that. That's wrong for me to do that. All right, well, then you're out of here. You're fired. But God, I was trying to honor you. But your first responsibility is to honor God. And almost in every situation, you can honor your boss. But if they're asking you to do something illegal, they're asking you to do something immoral, we have to follow the example of the Apostle Peter, when he and the apostles were told by the religious leaders of Jerusalem, no more talking about Jesus. Next day they're out talking about Jesus. And they said, we told you, you're not allowed to talk about Jesus. And they said, look man, we, yeah we know, but we must obey God rather than man. And so whatever the consequences are, that's what the consequences are. And that needs to be our mantra as well, we have to obey God rather than man. That doesn't mean we never obey man. More often than not, the boss, I just want to get the job done. He's not trying to do anything illegal. She's not trying to do anything immoral. They Just do with this. Now, what's interesting to me, maybe to you, the Greek word that is translated here for master, I'm not good with Greek. I'm not good with any accent. Um, just about everybody I try to interpret sounds like Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, and so I'm not very good. But the word is despotes. You can see in it almost, despot. You familiar with that word, despot? A dictator? Uh, The word meant a ruler or other person who holds absolute authority and often wields that authority in a cruel and oppressive way. That's what the word despot means. And so this word here talking about master, it comes from the same root. And you only need to imagine how the average slave owner treated their slaves so that this word desperate seems like an appropriate choice of words. Paul is saying even to those type of leaders, the Christian bondservant was to submit, regardless of whether their masters were good guys or they were bad guys, they were to submit. And going back to that military term, they were to stand at a ready posture for their boss's command. So for you and I, notice, Paul's not saying, if you have a real nice boss, then be a real good employee. That's not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is, regardless of whether you have a good boss or a bad boss, be a real good employee. Amen? Amen. I think that Christians should be the best employees of any organization. I really do. You may not be the smartest. You may not be the most capable. You may not be the wisest or whatever. Anybody can go to school and learn some things and maybe you haven't been there yet. But you can certainly be the person of character and honesty and integrity and show up and go and do the extra mile. Anybody can do that. Next, Paul goes on to say they are to be well-pleasing. Again, notice he doesn't say if their bosses are well-pleasing, then you be well-pleasing to them. He says simply they're to be well-pleasing. And this idea of well-pleasing, it means to be honest and trustworthy. By application, it means to pay attention to detail. It means to do what it is you're supposed to do without having to be nagged and told to be doing it. I know, amen. It means doing things that you're not necessarily, that are not necessarily part of your job description. I'm not the janitor. I don't pick up those papers on the ground here. Pick them up, do it anyway. It means to be a good employee, well-pleasing. Now some of us here, maybe you're in a tough situation, and maybe you're dealing with a pretty difficult boss that you have a very hard time dealing with. In that situation, we're fortunate, United States of America, I would start looking somewhere else. I would start polishing my resume, finding another opportunity, but while you're still there, looking for some other opportunity while you're still in that situation in your present job with that crummy boss, be the best employee that you can be in that circumstance. And ultimately, who are you working for? You're working for your Heavenly Father. If he's pleased, you know, there are some people, you could be the greatest employee ever, and your boss still won't be happy. But if God is pleased, that's a good day's work. Paul goes on, he says, don't be argumentative. Literally, don't speak against. The idea is whether it's overt, wait right out there, I'll give you a piece of my mind, or it's more covert and you're undermining the circumstances here. The idea is being resistant to the will of your boss. Constant argument about every decision that is made. It's the opposite of being submissive and well-pleasing. It's being argumentative. He says, not pilfering. I I didn't know what pilfering meant. It sounded familiar. It means to steal. He says, don't steal. Now, specifically, it's this idea of taking a little bit and no one's going to notice. Today, we would use words like embezzlement. Usually, we use that for big amounts of money here. But it's just taking a little bit. Nobody's ever going to notice and pop it into your pocket. That type of offense, it was so common amongst slaves that the word bondservant or slaves and the word thief became kind of interchangeable in like sort of common Greek language here. It was just so common it was expected. Of course, the, the uh, servant is going to pocket a little for himself or for herself so that he can get by on that and have a little bit of extra. Paul says, don't do it. He says, don't pilfer. Don't pilfer large sums of money. Don't pilfer small sums of money. Don't pilfer office supplies. People do that a lot. Don't do that. Here's one that I think a lot of us struggle with. You're being paid a certain amount per hour. Work while you're being paid. Stop running off into some corner and hiding and then putting in your time card saying, yeah, I worked an hour when you didn't you were sitting in the other room on your phone, you know, playing or chatting with people somewhere else. Be honest, be truthful, and here's a fun one, be different. Because you live that way, that's not how the slaves lived at, at that particular point in time. Remember, the word was interchangeable here. Live in that particular way, and you're going to stand down, you're going to be different. Be someone that your boss can trust, which is what Paul goes on to say in the next little verse there when he says, showing all good faith, He's not talking about faith in the sense of have all the right beliefs. Really, he's talking about this idea of faithfulness, showing all good faith, faithfulness. Trustworthiness is what he's referring to. This refers to an employee, employee faithfully doing whatever it is that they are supposed to do. An interesting note is that in the, Rome, in the Roman side, and I think it even happened here in the United States, if you've ever read the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know that it was brought up in that particular novel there that Stowe wrote. And that is that the Christian slave, when they went up on the auction block, you know, they put the guy up there, the gal up there, and said, look at those muscles, look at that, those shoulders, look at that back, and you'll be happy to know this fellow's a Christian too. And Christian slaves often went for more money than non-believing slaves. And the reason is, is because they could be trusted. And they tended to be harder workers and the like. They knew what they needed to do, and they did it. Paul says that's a type of, if you will, in our context, that's the type of employee that every one of us is supposed to be. He goes on, he says, do these things, be submissive, be well-pleasing, don't be argumentative, don't steal, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, Why am I doing all these things? Paul doesn't say, do all these things so that you can get a raise. He doesn't say, do all these things so that you'll get that promotion. He doesn't say, do all these things, maybe your master will set you free someday. He doesn't say any of that. He says, do all of these things so that others will observe your life and begin to think, you know what, maybe I want to become a believer too. What you're doing is adorning the gospel, the doctrine of God or a savior. That word adorn there, it means to take precious jewels and to arrange them in such a way as to show their beauty. The picture I had in mind is you had a whole bunch of diamonds or whatever it might be, and you just threw them sort of like in this little plastic bowl and you set them there on the shelf. It would be like, you got a bunch of stones there, that's interesting. But what do they do? They pull out that little black felt thing, I don't know what they do, and they put the diamonds right out on there and you're like, holy cow, look at that. You adorn them, you arrange them in such a way that you show their true beauty. Listen, the message of the gospel is beautiful. I don't think there's a more sweeter message that is applicable to every human being that has ever lived than the message of the gospel. The fact that you could be a sinner so far away from God, and yet there is a God that entered in and paid your debt to reconcile you back into relationship with him. What a sweet message. For me, anybody can hear that particular message. And so the message of the gospel is beautiful in and of itself. But when the power of the gospel is evident in a transformed life, well, you've just adorned that gospel. Because, you know, I could share this message with you and you're like, wow, that's really neat. But I could show this message to you as well. And you could say, you know what? I believe it. Because I've seen it in your life, and I've seen it in your life, and I've seen it in your life. You're adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior. Consider what Paul's saying. The lowest of the low in society, the slaves. You have the ability, you have the opportunity to be the representative of heaven and potentially change a person's life and their eternity by setting this pattern and setting this example. And, of course, this obviously expands to every area of life, even beyond work and employment. Whenever the gospel is demonstrated by its practical effect on a person's life, that person is adorning the gospel. And really, this is Paul's primary motivating factor. This is why he's writing what he's writing, and honestly, it should be ours as well that others might be drawn to God through us, that others might be interested in considering beginning a relationship with God because they see the impact that God has had and our relationship with him has had on our own lives here. You know, sometimes we think of evangelism. We're gonna have the women's relational evangelism. We're doing our regional evangelism in late April and so on. We talk about sharing the faith and what it is we should share. Sometimes when we look at that and we think about that, we think, if I could just, just get the right words to say, I can convince everybody to become a Christian. Well, Paul is not saying, speaking here about having better words and the impact that that can have. He's speaking here about having a better life, living a better life, and the impact that that can have. Now, I totally think there's a place for going to those classes and learning the things to say and how to respond and so on. And certainly we need to learn what is the gospel. Some of us don't even know necessarily how to explain it and what it actually is. I know what it is in my heart. I don't know what words to say about it. And so we should learn those particular things here. But really, what people need to observe are not better words, but they need to look at our lives. And they need to see that truth in our lives. So consider that. The lowest of the low of society can become the representative of heaven, whose conduct in life very well may be the catalyst that causes somebody else to become a follower of Christ. So brother or sister, be a good employee. Serve your employer well, because in doing you make salvation attractive to both them and to your coworkers. So when we, we're gonna move on to a new section next week. It's, it's kind of a change of gear. So in these 10 verses here the point that Paul is making when he talks to the old women the young men and so on and so forth here is every single person in the church in this local body of believers every single one of us has a role to play in the advancement of the gospel it's not just the res- the job of the leaders or the preacher or whatever it might be. It's not just Titus's job. it's every single person that lives in that community we have a role to play in the advancement of the gospels, the gospel. Doesn't matter what age you are, doesn't matter what gender you are, it doesn't matter where your social status is, you have a part to play in impacting the local community. And we should take that seriously. We want to adorn the gospel of God with our lives here. And so I encourage you in that. Hopefully that's very practical, that you can take it. Look, when you go to work tomorrow, whatever it might be, you're with people at work more than you are with just about anybody else. You're probably, waking hours, you're with those people more than you are with most other people in your life, and maybe even your own immediate family. And so it's an opportunity. You're there with them. Additionally, when you're at work, Nobody wants to go to work. Does anybody want to go to work? Some people love their job. I love my job. <laughs> Give it time. <laughs> Already, right, pretty soon you're not going to. <laughs> Work's fine. It's good. I, I used to like when I was a teacher and all that. Uh, it was kind of fun. Um, but people are going to look at your life because at work, everything doesn't go great. And sometimes it's tedious and monotonous and frustrating. And sometimes you have successes and other times you have failures. And people are looking and they're observing how you respond in those particular circumstances there. So, unto the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I I do pray, Lord, that uh, we we would all do this well. Lord, the gospel of God is so sweet. We certainly know it to be true. We, almost every one of us in this room, many of us certainly, have experienced it to be true. The transforming power of the Holy Spirit entering into our lives, the forgiveness of sin, the cleansing that is ours when we became followers of Christ. Lord, the way in which you change us in, in things we do, but also just our responses to circumstances. Lord, you begin to mold us from the inside out. And we rejoice in that. So, yes, the gospel is beautiful. And our desire is to live our lives in such a way that others might look at it and be drawn to you. Not to us, but to you. And so, Lord, I pray you would bless the word today. Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you might uh, challenge every individual heart here. Encourage, certainly, but challenge about a particular area or many areas that you want to uh, do your refining work in. Lord, we want to glorify you. We do. We want to live lives that are well-pleasing to you in response to the good work you've done in us. And so bless your word that we've learned today in your name. Amen.